Good morning. My name is Michael McCusker. I start today's program with a screed of my own scratching, which I preface with a couple of quotes. The first by Henry Adams. Politics is the systematic organization of hatreds. And by Rich Bond, once upon a time, in the late last millennium, Republican National Committee chairman. We are America. Those other people are not America. The American century that never quite materialized will most likely not expand into an American millennium. And the 21st century is not quite the liberty century, former Republican President George W. Bush ardently proclaimed it would be. America is always at war with itself, an incessant battleground between raw power and civil rights. And most especially the premise that a single political party be allowed absolute power in the claim that one ideology is right and every other political option regarded as unpatriotic and un-American, even treachery, is the most pervasively dangerous aspect of contemporary politics in the USA. Personal freedom has not been an easy achievement, nor justice, anything but a bloody war between those who would extend the rights of democracy and those who would limit and possibly even abolish them. Democracy is being shaken to its roots, and its survival depends on the very people it was constructed to not only protect, but who are constitutionally mandated as its source of power. Our ancestors insisted that these rights and liberties would be fought here, yet anyone who smugly insists we are the seeds of liberty for the rest of the world is wrong-headed to a sublime degree. We are not a triumphant example of democracy, but a perpetual work in progress. We are and always will be in revolution as well as civil war about democracy. History, it would seem, has generally been of people acquiescing, if not entirely obedient to the rule of despots. And although our venerated revolutionary ancestors attempted to overturn the prevailing rule of aristocracies, a comparatively no-vu political clique is hell-bent to reverse even a pretense of democracy, a velvet-gloved fist, so to speak, in the guise of its perpetuation while suppressing it. These folk are ardent practitioners of doublethink and its duplicitous spawn double talk. They seem to believe the natural state of most of humanity, Americans included, is rulers and ruled being the natural state of governance. American democracy is considered by its self-appointed elites to be a confused and malingering mobocracy, needing strict constructionist authority to govern their impulsive disorderliness. Elites take root in every society, 
and acquire unequal power unless the counterbalance restrains them. In a democracy, that force of resistance is constitutionally the power of ordinary people. Political parties are formed to reflect and channel the passions and aspirations of ordinary people and publicly represent them fairly, efficiently, and powerfully, in theory at least, with a minimum of corruption and disruption. The two-party system fails in this purpose. It is too exclusive and compressed and it eliminates too many people and ideas from the actual process of governance. The parties in reality serve politicians and their favored patrons rather than the voters. With only two major parties through which to realize their ambitions, mainstream politicians show little interest in responding to minority interests or, in fact, to registering into the parties the millions of blacks, Hispanics, or Caucasian poor who seldom participate in political activity. Although there is much public posturing about registering voters to swell party ranks, it would also broaden the base of the party and subsequently threaten an established and relatively consistent status quo. Of the two major American political parties, which Alexander Pope declaimed as the madness of many for the gain of a few, the Democratic Party is traditionally the party of working people and ethnic and racial minority voters. Though its history is hardly glorious, in particular, its advocacy of Southern apartheid in the 19th century although its northern portion stayed with the Union, the Democratic Party usually, though reluctantly and always narrowly, encompasses a mixed variety of ideas, philosophies, and cultural styles that would otherwise find expression in other parties, which generally have little chance against the prevalent two-party system. Jammed uncomfortably into this single political party alongside a now virtually vanished previous core of strict constructionists are liberals, leftists, trade unionists, environmentalists, various minority racial and ethnic groups, feminists, and others who might be regarded as free thinkers, progressives, and heretics. While the Republican Party generally represents the aspirations and pretensions of wealthy Tories and plutocrats and would more likely include proto-Nazis than fuzzy-headed liberals, the Democrats switched their antebellum loyalties at the end of the 19th century to embrace the hordes of impoverished Mediterranean and Eastern European immigrants who were imported to work in the rapidly expanding American industrial machine. The old cadre of party bosses were never comfortable with the mix of political ideas these masses brought with them, but certainly liked their numbers, and even later incoming Asian immigrants who flooded the party. The party of rebellion, quote-unquote, 
found its political platform from increasingly mixed socialist and so-called liberal reforms. And in the 1930s, the Democrats under Franklin D. Roosevelt engineered a major redefinition of government's role in American society. Often accused since then as the party of the left, most likely more appealing than the party of traitors that continues to resonate from the Civil War. The Democrats usually attempt to fix the national political structure after rapacious Republicans tear it apart with corruption, mismanagement, and egregious hate campaigns against political adversaries, primarily women, liberals, and racial minorities. The Republicans act paranoid in their attempts at exclusivity and political purity, each campaign a further withdrawal from the incredibly and increasingly diverse mass of citizenry, while the Democrats, more by default, reflect that diversity, perhaps because there seems to be no other home for it, as a result of GOP rejection and the relative unpopularity and powerlessness of third parties. Self-proclaimed as the party of the people as a result of the affiliation of disenfranchised workers and immigrants, the Democrats have in their campaigns the past century and new millennium favored such liberal causes as labor reform, anti-racism, gay rights, abortion on demand, abolishing capital punishment, gun control, equal representation in politics by women, racial minorities, young people, the 18-year-old vote, also abortion rights for women, which have recently been nullified by a Republican-majority Supreme Court after a half-century basic right. And although Democrats were in power during most of the last century's wars in which the U.S. participated, dissenting Democrats have been in the forefront of the demands that war be abolished as the nation's major instrument of world power. It might seem ultra-partisanship to suggest that a best possible outcome of the bitter, uncivil war between political parties is that the Republicans self-destruct through their own wolfish hysteria and that the two-party system be replaced or reformed by unzippering the two divisions between the Democrats to realign as separate parties, the so-called leftist liberals and the liberal centrists, which would indeed elevate the political quality in a reunited states of America. And the GOP might as well be exiled to the third-party dustbin, the seeming never-never land of politics in the USA. And that was something I wrote. And now, by Jennifer Rubin, writing for the Washington Post, there are no moderate House Republicans. Listen to the mainstream media's coverage of House Republicans, and you might think there is a mass of normal Republicans who do not buy into election denial, who are not apologists 
for former President Donald Trump and who understand that the party's crazy talk and election conspiracy theories contributed to its historic underperformance in the 2022 midterms. The mystery, where are these people hiding? Prime suspects would be the 18 Republicans from districts that Joe Biden won in 2020, such as Representatives David Schweikart of Arizona, Don Bacon of Nebraska, and Thomas H. Keene from New Jersey. Yet every single one of them voted 15 times to make Kevin McCarthy an election denier, the Speaker of the House. Every single one of them also voted for the rules package that the House passed, which sets up a standoff over the debt limit, creates a committee to investigate ongoing criminal cases, and hobbles the Office of Congressional Ethics. And they did not bat an eye over reports that McCarthy from California promised to give more seats on the Rules Committee to MAGA radicals, make America great again. Pretty immoderate behavior. Occasionally, members such as Representative Nancy Mace of South Carolina declare that it would be difficult to work with extreme members, such as Representative Matt Gates of Florida, whom she called a fraud on CBS News' Face the Nation this past Sunday. She also questioned concessions McCarthy made to the party's hardliner to become speaker, such as his promise to cap spending at 2022 levels, which would amount to a $75 billion cut in defense spending. She even considered withholding her vote for the House rule packages over the issue. Yet, in the end, she voted for the package all the same. Then came the vote on Monday to repeal the $80 billion boost in funding for the Internal Revenue Service that Congress passed last year. Getting rid of this money would empower tax cheats and add some $115 billion to the deficit over the next decade. Yet every Republican voted for it. Again, there was no difference between how faux moderates and the worst of the election-denying extremists voted. It should be clear now that these normal Republicans have deceived voters. Keene, for example, ran in the mold of his famous father, the moderate former New Jersey governor. And Bacon told the Washington Post last month that moderates in the party have to flex our muscles a little bit more and say, we are going to govern America. And he added, there's a small number that want their way or the highway. Well, that's how we fail. We cannot let 2% or 3% drive the whole Congress. But these two enable the extremists all the time. Likewise, a slew of Republicans are members of the Problem Solvers Caucus, but they seem to be part of the problem. Consider Representative Young Kim of California, who in her profile on the caucus's website declares, I came to Congress to break through the partisan gridlock and get things done. Given that she refused to impeach Trump, backed McCarthy, and regularly votes with the extreme right, that statement is about as credible as Representative George Santos's resume. 
Rarely, if ever, do the media grill these immoderate members on their enabling of the far right. Frankly, reporters do a disservice to the voters by characterizing them as somehow more sensible than the Freedom Caucus crazies. With the House as closely divided as it is, it would take only a few of them to defeat radical measures, yet time and again they cave. Ultimately, this is the voters' fault. They should have known when they cast ballots to re-elect moderate incumbents that their voting records don't match their rhetoric, yet they sent them to Congress anyway and often complain that Congress doesn't get anything done. When 2024 rolls around, they should kick out members who voted to empower Freedom Caucus extremism. That would constitute real problem solving. And that was by Jennifer Rubin. There are no moderate House Republicans. And she wrote that for the Washington Post. And now, from the New York Times, legal use of hallucinogenic mushrooms begins in Oregon. On January 1st, Oregon became the first state to allow adult use of psilocybin magic mushrooms. Licensed guides will likely determine whether the program is a success. The crook, oh, and by the way, this is by Andrew Jacobs. The curriculum was set, the students were enrolled, and Oregon officials had signed off on nearly every detail of training for the first class of magic mushroom facilitators seeking state certification. But as a four-day session got underway inside a hotel conference room in early December, an important pedagogical tool was missing, the mushrooms themselves. That's because state officials, two years after Oregon voters narrowly approved the adult use of psilocybin, were still hammering out the regulatory framework for the production and sale of the tawny hallucinogenic fungi. Instead, the students, most of them seasoned mental health professionals, would have to role play with one another using meditation or intensive breathing practices that could lead to altered states of consciousness, the next best thing to the kind of psychedelic trip they would encounter as licensed guides. Not that anyone was complaining. Like many of the two dozen students who paid nearly $10,000 for the course, Jason Wright, 48, a hospital psychiatric nurse in Portland, said he was thrilled to be part of a bold experiment with national implications. It's incredible to be on the front lines of something that has the potential to change our relationship with drugs that should never have been criminalized in the first place, he said. On January 1st, Oregon did become the first state in the nation to legalize the adult use of psilocybin a naturally occurring psychedelic that has shown significant promise for treating severe depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and end-of-life anxiety among the terminally ill, among other mental health conditions. Although scientists are still working to understand their therapeutic dynamics, psilocybin and other psychedelics are thought to promote neuroplasticity, 
a rewiring of the brain that gives patients fresh perspectives on long-standing psychiatric problems. One recent study on alcohol use disorder, for example, found that two doses of psilocybin paired with talk therapy led to an 83% decline in heavy drinking among participants, and that nearly half of them had stopped drinking entirely by the end of the eight-month trial. The long-term benefits, however, remain unclear. Measure 109, as it's called, authorized the creation of psilocybin service centers where anyone over 21 can consume the mushrooms in a supervised setting. One key requirement is that a state-certified facilitator must be present during drug-induced journeys, which can last five or six hours. Unlike cannabis, which can be sold at dispensaries, Oregon will not allow the retail sale of psilocybin. Consumption must take place at a licensed service center. For drug supporters, Oregon's approval of Measure 109 is nothing short of revolutionary, a seismic policy shift they hope will inspire other states and municipalities and persuade federal authorities to ease long-standing prohibitions. Oregon voters also made history in 2020 by decisively voting to decriminalize the personal possession of small amounts of hard drugs like heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamines. And I pronounced that wrong. I apologize. And that was by Andrew Jacobs for the New York Times. Legal use of hallucinogenic mushrooms begins in Oregon. And now a tribute, which I wrote. Jack London was born today, January 12th, 147 years ago at the start of Yankee Doodle's centennial year of 1876. Although London's fame as an American writer of the late 19th century rests primarily on his stories of Yukon and oceanic adventures, it might also be claimed that his real call of the wild was his voracious penchant for socialism, and he truly did attempt to light a fire in the minds of Americans against the iron heel of capitalist oppression. And all three of those were call of the wild to light a fire and the iron heel were stories he wrote. He wrote his most controversial book, The Iron Heel, in 1908, and it is considered to be the earliest example of so-called dystopian fiction. The Iron Heel is framed in the USA in the two decades between 1912 through 1932, during which a so-called oligarchy of capitalistic business and wealth rises to dictatorial supremacy, which London denounced with his book's title. The Iron Heel signifies the repression and brutal maintenance of power through a slave labor caste and counterforce mercenaries who mercilessly stomp upon the socialist and proletariat revolutionaries attempting to revolt and overthrow the reigning business autocracy of American robber barons. London wrote of the Iron Heel, we must accept the capitalist stage in social evolution as about on a par with the earlier monkey stage. And it was inevitable, he wrote, 
that much of the mire and slime of this early stage should cling and not be easily shaken off. There is a greater strength than wealth, London wrote in the Iron Heel. One strength, the strength of the proletariat, is in our muscles, in our hands to cast ballots, in our fingers to pull triggers. The Iron Heel influenced George Orwell's 1984, according to a biographer, and Orwell himself, whose real name was Eric Blair, said that Jack London made, quote, a very remarkable prophecy of the rise of fascism, unquote, and that London's, quote, understanding of the primitive, unquote, made him a better prophet than many better informed and more logical thinkers. And that was also a quote. Primitive communism, chattel slavery, serf slavery, and wage slavery were necessary stepping stones in the evolution of society, Jack London wrote in the Iron Heel. Without them, anarchy would reign and humanity would drop backward into the primitive night out of which it had so painfully emerged. It should serve as a warning to those rash political theorists of today who speak with certitude of social processes, London wrote. Jack London, whose birth name was John Griffith Cheney, died on November 22, 1916. This is Michael McCusker. Dylan Hauser Schalk is this program's engineer. Tomorrow is the first Friday, the 13th of 2023. The next Friday, the 13th this year, will be in October, the scary month of All Hallows' Eve. And Sunday will be the 94th birthday of the assassinated Martin Luther King Jr., who was born January 15th. 1929. He was murdered on April 4, 1968, definitely martyred in the cause of racial equality. He was born Michael King Jr., but most likely changed his name to honor the first theological protestant. Happy Black Cat Friday.